Uh, church, turn to John chapter 20. Uh, chapter 20, if um, for some reason my Bible is falling apart at this section, I can only wonder why that is. We are going to give special attention today to verses 21 through 29 in a sermon entitled Declarers and Doubters. Declarers and Doubters. Uh, I'm going to begin reading for context purposes at uh, John 20 verse 19 and I'll read all the way to 29. I hope you have your Bibles open and I hope you have them out and I hope you'll read this together with me. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples saw. Or the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. <clears throat> and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his, in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do thank you for this word. Lord, it, is, um, it has been an interesting week to study this text, uh, but there's so much here that we can learn from your word and and yet lord we submit to its power and its authority help us um, to have clarity help us to gain exactly what we need to gain from this scripture and ultimately what we need to gain is to be made more into the image of your son and so lord that's something we say and we pray often but help it be the desire of our hearts to be more like jesus we love you, Lord, and we ask for your help this morning. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. So let's get right into the text here. There is much to cover, and so we're going to dive right in. Uh, this morning, what we come to is the portion of John's gospel that is basically the equivalent to the Great Commission that we see in the other gospels. This is John's gospel, uh, his Great Commission, uh, the gospel of John's Great Commission. What we see in our text here is that Jesus is sending or commissioning the apostles to go out and to begin proclaiming the good news. 
Jesus now having accomplished all that he needed to accomplish, all that was necessary for people to be at peace with God, he is now preparing his apostles to take this gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Look at these words again in verse 21 of our text. He said, the Bible says, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me, I also send you. Church, it's important for us to realize that when Jesus commissioned his apostles to take up this work, he's not giving them a new ministry separate from his own. Rather, Jesus is commissioning them to carry on his ministry. In fact, we could even say Jesus is the one continuing his ministry through the apostles. That ministry and this ministry was and continues to be a revelation of the heart of God for lost souls. See, when the father sent the son into the world, he revealed his heart to us. He sent Jesus into his world because of the great love that he had for his people. When Jesus came, he came with a mission to accomplish. He came to redeem mankind and to proclaim this good news throughout the world. Well, the means that our triune God has chosen to spread this news was through the ministry of his apostles. As the Father sent Jesus to carry out his mission, so Jesus sends the apostles to carry out his mission. And as we learn from the rest of the scriptures, their ministry extends to us in the church today. Our task today is the same that they had back then, to take the good news and share it with lost, hurting Souls. So we see in verse 21, really part of the context of the first half of our sermon is that this is the commission for the apostles to go and declare the good news. Let's move on to verse 22 here where it says uh, the following. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a little bit of a difficult text to understand. A lot of people have difficulty with this particular verse, and I admit that it, it really does take some work to appreciate what Jesus is doing here. But the part that causes confusion is not so much the act of Jesus breathing on his disciples. Rather, it's what he says while he's breathing on them. He tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. So the question that immediately comes up in my mind, and I hope maybe in your mind, is was this something that was a pre-Pentecost Pentecost or something else, something similar? Well, in my humble opinion, this is not a pre-Pentecost in any way, shape, or form. This is not a pre-Pentecost outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is not the fulfillment of what Jesus prophesied would happen later and would come to pass at Pentecost. It wouldn't make sense if this were a pre-Pentecost. Because Jesus tells them then to go to Jerusalem, wait for me, and you will receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You will receive power for the church to accomplish what I want it to accomplish. What Jesus is doing here is basically anointing the apostles for the work of being his apostles. That's what we see here in this text. It's the anointing of the apostles. 
Jesus is enabling them with the gift of the Holy Spirit to carry out that particular commissioned work that he had just given them to do in verse 21. It helps us to understand this a little bit better when we consider how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. Now, we appreciate how the Holy Spirit worked before Pentecost. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit gifted people to carry out certain tasks. For instance, you recall how, how King David in Psalm 51 verse 11, he, he prayed for God not to take his Holy Spirit from him. Now, many use that particular passage to say, see, I told you it's, it's possible for someone to lose their salvation, but that's not what the text really means. As you know, Psalm 51 was written of David as it was a psalm of repentance. And in light of, of David's gross and heinous sins that he had committed even as king, he knew he was in grave danger of forfeiting his throne like his predecessor, King Saul. That's why he prays this prayer. King Saul had been anointed by God to carry out the work of being the king. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, we are explicitly told that the spirit of the Lord came upon him and Saul was even given the gift of prophecy. But friends, we all know how things turned out for King Saul, don't we? In 1 Samuel 16, that's just six chapters later, we read this in verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. See, when David sinned, he knew he was worthy of the same judgment from God. So this is why he prays for the spirit to not depart from him. So in light of the way in which the spirit was given pre-Pentecost as a gift to enable God's service to do the work he gives them to do, it seems the most reasonable thing is to see the same thing happening here to the disciples. Uh, even though they have the anointing of the Spirit, you will see them later on participating in the outpouring spirit of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost with the rest of the church. They're there in Acts 2, and they receive the outpouring of the Spirit just like everyone else. Why would they need a, a double dose of the Spirit? There's, there's no way they would. They would not. So, so what God did at Pentecost, we must be reminded, he did once and for all. So having been anointed by the Spirit to carry out the commissioned work of our Savior, things get even more interesting when we look at verse 23. We get a glimpse of what would be entailed in that work. Listen to these words again in verse 23 of our text. They say, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Okay, now this also happens to be another difficult verse, right? This happens to be a verse that many Christians have trouble understanding. So let me say this. Jesus is not saying that the apostles in and of themselves have been given the authority to judge the souls of men. That is not what he's saying here. It's not what's being conveyed. Jesus isn't saying that they in themselves actually have a power to forgive people or to hold their sins against them. Uh, the reason we know this is once again because of the context. Jesus has just pronounced 
his peace to be upon them in three different occasions. He then tells them he's sending them out into the world to proclaim the very gospel message by which the peace of God comes to them. It is in their proclamation of the gospel message that forgiveness and judgment come. That's really the point of verse 23. It's through the proclamation of the gospel, uh, forgiveness and judgment come. I want you to see that. It's very important because the same thing is true of the ministry today. Uh, even as I'm preaching to this particular flock who are hearing this good news of God's salvation for sinners, that, that hear how he offers salvation to all that would believe on him and call upon his name, there will be some who believe the message and there will be some who will not. For those who truly believe the message, I can say with full confidence from the Lord based on his word that if you truly believe, your sins are forgiven you. The absolution of sin doesn't have anything to do with me as a pastor. It's not some power I have over you. It's the power of the gospel message. Absolution of sin comes from God and God alone. He says that explicitly time and time again in his word. Jesus himself says to those who believe this message, your sins are forgiven you. On the other hand, for those who don't believe the message, the fact is you still remain in your sins. Your sins are retained. They go with you everywhere you go. Again, this isn't a judgment that comes from me as a person, as a pastor. It's a judgment that comes from God. It's a power that is tied to God's word as it goes forward. And so this passage has to do with the power and authority of God as his gospel is proclaimed. It will either result in the softening of hearts and providing forgiveness, or it will result in the hardening of hearts, people in their sins, staying in their sins and facing judgment. Either way, God's word and God's spirit are always at work performing these two tasks. The question for each of us this morning is, have we been forgiven? Have we come to be at peace with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we bearing forth fruit that shows we have this peace that he purchased personally with us? Is the peace of God something that characterizes us as a congregation, as God's people? That's what we should expect. If we know the peace of God, it should be reflected within the assembly of God's people. Now let's look at verse 24 as we transition to this particular text. Now we go from the declarer section of our text to the doubting section of our text. And you know who we're talking about now. This is Thomas. The Bible says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. I want to stop there because as I looked at this section concerning Thomas, I don't know about you, but I, I couldn't help but to wonder why Thomas was absent from the group on the day of the resurrection. What caused him to not be there? And as we consider that, we do well to note that because of his absence, Thomas missed out on seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead. In fact, we could say that Thomas's absence results in one really bad week. It would be one whole week before he would get to see and know that Jesus was raised from the dead. And for that whole week, Thomas continued to think that he was dead. 
we can safely assume that Thomas was troubled in his heart and soul. And I want you just to think about this. Had Thomas been present in the group on the previous Lord's Day, he would have been spared an entire week of fear and heartache. He would have been free of his doubt. He would have been free of his unbelief a week earlier. Now, we're not told why Thomas wasn't with them on the previous week, so it won't do us any good to speculate. But one thing we can say for sure is it would have been better for Thomas had he been with the rest of the group on that day. Church family, the application is clear, isn't it? There there may be times in our lives when we choose not to come to worship for really what are, are silly reasons. Now, maybe we're feeling lazy. Maybe we decided that We'd rather do something else that's more appealing to us in the moment. But please know, when when I say silly reasons, I'm distinguishing those from legitimate reasons. There are legitimate reasons as to why some people cannot make it to worship, right? We're, We're living in one of those right now with this pandemic. There are times that God providentially keeps us from being able to make it to the assembly. And we can't do anything about that, right? But aside from those times, let's be honest here. Frankly, there are just some times when Christians are all too ready to miss worship. And that's sad. Uh, Let us take to heart the fact that our absence from worship may cause us to miss more than we ever would really know. And so let's be careful that we don't miss worship for weak reasons. Of course, some people are good about catching up and listening to the sermons online, but I'm sure if we're learning anything from this time, right, we should know by now that that is not exactly the same as being with God's people in the assembly under the live preaching of God's word. The point of this is that coming to worship is important. If you can be here, you should be here. And friends, let me just bear my heart with you for a moment. I know so many of you are longing for when we come together, but what I, what I don't want is when this whole thing is over, the pandemic's over, and we're able to come together and worship, I don't want you to think we're going to have one really good event and then things could go back to normal. I, I think this would be a waste if after this your church life just went back to normal. Uh, Friends, let's consider this. God should be creating in you a longing and a need for your church community that lasts beyond just one Sunday of having the option to come back to church, but knowing the importance of it on a week-in, week-out basis. I hope you are changed for the better because of this time, because of your commitment and your recommitment to God's house. And that doesn't mean, by the way, just Sunday service. Considering Sunday school, Sunday night, Wednesday night, as many opportunities as we can have for gospel community, I pray that if we learn anything from this pandemic, it would be a stronger commitment to those things because they are important. If you can be here, you should be here. If you can't, still spend time with the Lord. Yes, he will minister to your soul. Don't doubt that. But do not miss worship for what we would call less than good reasons. Getting back now to Thomas and moving on in our sermon, I want us to look at uh, point number five here. Notice his reluctance to believe the testimony of his close friends and fellow disciples. 
Thomas's reluctance to believe the testimony of really his friends. I, I can't help but to be amazed by the persistence of his unbelief here in verse 25. I cannot help but to be amazed by how persistent he is in stating he will not believe. He almost sounds like a child here. Look at what he says in verse 25. He says, so the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord, but he, being Thomas, said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He is not going to move unless his conditions are met. Uh, Thomas was quite set in his unwillingness to believe that Jesus had risen from the grave. His reaction to the testimony of the ten has a lot of force behind it, doesn't it? Uh, he tells them he doesn't believe, and unless he sees and touches with his hands, he will never believe. Well, it's easy to see he has no intention of believing the resurrection until or unless his conditions are met. You know, Thomas had every reason to believe the, the testimony of the ten. He spent the last three years with these men. They had followed Jesus. They were his disciples. Surely he knew them well and should have known they would never try to fool him on such a serious subject especially in the light of the fact that Jesus himself told him that he would die and then come back from the dead in three days. But Thomas is content to go on acting like an unbeliever. I say acting because I do believe that he was a believer here. There's a lot of question about when his, many think this is his conversion. Some believe that he had faith, but a weak faith. I'm going under the guise that he did have faith, but a weak faith here. But regardless, he is going through a time of unbelief. He's acting like people around us today act. How often do we hear the atheists and agnostics that they say they will not believe in God unless he does this or that? Unless he appears before me right now, I will not believe. Unless I can see him with my own eyes and hands, I will not believe. Unless God tells me why he did this, unless he can explain to me how he allowed that, unless he can tell me why my dad died or why I was born in an orphanage or why I had to go through so much pain and sorrow I experienced, unless he solves the hunger problems or the injustices going on in the world today, unless I see the heavens open up and God speaks down to me personally, unless I see somebody raised from the dead and touch them with my hands, I will not believe." Friends, who was Thomas to demand such conditions? Who is anybody to demand such conditions from God? After all that God has gone through to reveal himself to us, how can anybody go on to demand more than he has graciously given? How much more will it take to satisfy the unbelieving hearts of men and women? I can assure you, by the way, no matter what conditions men may come up with, if God were to, for some reason, condescend to meet their conditions, men would come up with further reasons not to believe. That's just the way people are. Unbelief is part of our sinful nature. In fact, it's the core of our sinful nature. You know, unbelievers aren't the only ones, by the way, to set up conditions for unbelief in God and in his word. How many times have you and I behaved just like this in our life as believers? 
we act at times like unbelievers. Let me ask you, have you ever been in the midst of some great difficulty in your life? And although you never verbalize it, you don't want to tell your friends this, but you have thought to yourself, unless the Lord does this or that, I don't think I can keep on believing. How many times have you put conditions on your faith? Church, let us be mindful that to do such a thing is to act like an unbeliever and to act like an unbeliever is no good thing. What I want for us to focus on and notice next, however, is something that's quite astounding. It's the manner in which Jesus goes on to minister to Doubting Thomas. This is remarkable to me, the manner in which Jesus ministers to Doubting Thomas, despite the fact that Thomas was talking and acting like an unbeliever, uh, Jesus doesn't go up to him to cut him down with sharp rebukes. Jesus doesn't come up to him and put him in his place like he really deserved. Look at what Jesus did in this text, verses 26 and 27 of our text here. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst. That sound familiar to you? And said, peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. It is just frankly amazing to see what Jesus says to Thomas here, isn't it? He tells him, Thomas, touch, feel, see. It's almost as though Jesus knew and had heard exactly what Thomas had said because he did. Jesus knows the hearts of all men. And Jesus tells him to do exactly what he said, it, said he needed in order to believe. Now listen, we are not to take away from this that Jesus will always meet our sinful conditions to believe in him. That is not the application from this particular text. We shouldn't take from this that we should carry on acting like unbelievers and thinking that Jesus is always going to meet all of our sinful conditions for believing on him. But rather, the thing that should impress us the most here is the grace and the gentleness with which Jesus interacts with his beloved disciple. I want to read a quote to you by J.C. Ryle and the way he describes this. Look at what he says here. He says, Nowhere, perhaps in all the four Gospels, do we find this part of our Lord's character so beautifully illustrated as a story before our eyes. It's hard to imagine anything more tiresome and provoking than the conduct of Thomas. But it's impossible to imagine anything more patient and compassionate than our Lord's treatment of this weak disciple. He does not reject him or dismiss him or excommunicate him. He deals with him according to his weakness like a gentle nurse dealing with a froward child. A passage of scripture like this, we need not doubt, was written for the special comfort of all true believers. The Holy Spirit knew well that the dull and the slow and the stupid and the doubting are by far the commonest type of disciples in this evil world. The Holy Spirit has taken care to supple abundant evidence, supply abundant evidence that Jesus is rich in patience as well as compassion, that he bears with the infirmities of all his people. Let us take care that we drink into our Lord's spirit and copy his example. 
Let us never set down men in a low place as gracious and godless because their faith is feeble and their love is cold. Let us remember the case of Thomas and be very compassionate and of tender mercy. Our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his army, many lame sheep in his flock. Yet he bears with them all and, and cast none away. Happy is that Christian who has learned to deal likewise with his brethren. There are many in the church who, like Thomas, are dull and slow, but for all that, like Thomas, are real and true believers. Friends, I, can I confess something to you? It is, it is easy for me at times to be short with people, at least in my heart, who don't have a strong faith or seem to be losing their faith. It's difficult for me. In fact, it's tempting to want to be quick to call them before the elders, to rebuke them and call them even to discipline quickly. Uh, if, if Thomas were in our congregation, some of us might have little patience with him, but I think it's so important for us to copy the example of our gracious, gentle, and compassionate Savior. It doesn't mean that there's not a place for discipline, but let us be quick for compassion, quick for understanding, and quick to deliver the words of God so that they may be um, restored. Look at the, the next thing that we're going to go on, our, our next subject, verse 28, because I want you to, to see something that's connected really to this point. I want you to look at the result of our Lord's kindness to Thomas. Look at what it produces. Look at what grace and compassion produces in Thomas. Verse 28 says uh, these words, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, just as it is so often true in our own lives that the kindness of the Lord is the thing that leads us to repentance, we see the very thing worked out here with Jesus and his weak disciple. To quote Pastor Gordon Ketty, he says this, he says, his confession, my Lord and my God, goes far beyond anything the wounds of Christ themselves can prove. He confesses faith in the divine Messiah. The faith that have been overplayed by some doubting thoughts now blazes with brighter light than ever before. He sees with the eye of his reawakened faith, not just the wounded hands of the risen master, but the divine glory of a victorious savior. With this great confession from Thomas, John's gospel actually reaches its climax. At the same time, it begins now to come to a close. See, chapter 1 is really something of a postscript or an epilogue to the gospel as a whole. Now, it's inspired no less, but, but really what we have here in Thomas's proclamation is the ending words as far as the gospel story itself is concerned. The way he constructed this, this seems to be John's conclusion. That being the case, John ends his gospel proper on the highest of notes. He also comes full circle to where we started in chapter 1 as we read previously. Remember back in chapter 1 where he told us that in verse 1, the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course in verse 14 of chapter 1, that same chapter, we read it earlier. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That same truth that was declared of Jesus at the beginning is testified at the end. Thomas confesses Jesus to be Yahweh himself. He was able to see with his eyes and touch with his hands the glorified body of his risen Savior. But before he closes, 
John includes a couple of comments from the mouth of Jesus for our sakes. This is really remarkable to me. Look at verse 29 with me. Look at verse 29 of our text. Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. First of all, I think it's worth noting that Thomas should have believed apart from his sight. Right? I know many of us think it was way easier perhaps for Thomas to believe because he was able and privileged enough to see and touch the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection. And I, I recognize that some people might read an account like this thinking, man, I wish I could do that. They've missed out on something because they didn't get to see him with their own eyes or touch them with their own hands. Uh, maybe there are some even listening this, to this today who think they'd have greater faith if they were able to have the blessing of the apostles. But Jesus includes this verse here for you. He wants you to know, and I want you to know, that this is not the case at all. There is more to our faith that meets the physical hand and eye. The very manner in which faith is ascribed in the scriptures is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So Jesus tells us here in no uncertain terms that we are blessed for believing without seeing. We are blessed for believing without having seen. But what does that mean? What's the application for that? Well, if, friends, if you'll indulge me, I, I've got a quote. Really, it's more of an excerpt from uh, R.C. Sproul's commentary on the book of John. And I just, it just struck me this week, and I wanted to read it with you. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want to conclude our sermon with these very words and this very important application. Here is what uh, R.C. Sproul says in his book. He says, In order to fully understand what Jesus meant when he made these remarks to Thomas, we have to understand the concept of blessedness as it comes to us through the pages of Scripture. Some modern translations depict blessedness simply as a degree of joy or happiness that we experience. So if God says, blessed are you, we take that to mean that we're going to experience great happiness. Blessedness has that element in it, but that's not the primary sense of it. The primary meaning of blessedness is to be looked on favorably by God. It has more to do with the disposition of God than with our feelings. When Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, he was saying that God is pleased that there are people who believe in Christ who have never seen him. Why would that be? Having been a professor of philosophy most of my adult life, I have been deeply concerned about the question of epistemology. Epistemology. That was great. That, that's why I'm not a professor of philosophy. Epistemology. How do we know what we know? How can we know anything for sure? There are various ways by which we know truth. Rational deduction, which gives us formal truth. Empirical investigation, which gives us the physical evidence by which science makes decisions about reality and other means. Then there's testimony which includes the record of the past, the witness that is given to us from the pages of history. I believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States, even though I've never met him. I've never even seen a photograph of him, and I've never seen him on television. I believe that the historical record is reliable enough that I can accept the information that he was the first president of the United States. What is the highest method, then, of knowing something? I submit to you that the highest source of truth we can possibly have is the word of God. 
The testimony of the word of God is higher than rational deduction, higher than empirical evidence, and higher than historical testimony. That is what Jesus was saying. He did not say that hearsay is better evidence than eyewitness testimony. Remember how Jesus rebuked the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. And then he began to teach them about himself in all the scriptures. Thus he showed them that God had prepared history for that moment. If you believe in Christ today, one way or the other, you believe because of the sacred testimony of scripture. The Bible is better than any epistemological source known to human science or investigation. And the author of the Bible is pleased when men receive the testimony of sacred scripture, get on their knees and say, my Lord and my God. Friends, that's very well put. The point is this testimony is enough. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 29. Do you believe that? That this testimony is enough for you, for your lost relatives and friends to bow a knee and cry? out my Lord and my God Jesus wants you to know that that they are blessed for believing even though they may not see and because of that we know that the outcome is the gift of faith that God grants the very salvation of your souls friends there is much here for us to learn and to think about and I pray that God would apply the scripture to our hearts in such a way that we would all have the proclamation of Thomas that when we are faced with seeing and hearing the words of the risen Christ we would cry out my Lord and my God let's pray together father we thank you for the beauty that is your word Lord I thank you that you are um, even more faithful uh, Father, to use someone like me to speak your word, even in the midst of difficult text and uh, my difficulty to speak the English language at times, Father, you are still um, mighty to work. So I, I thank you for that. I thank you uh, for the work that you've accomplished on our behalf, that you have brought and bought for us uh, peace with God, that we can have peace today. And I pray for those who may not know you, who uh, may be, be believers but are struggling with unbelief like Thomas or who may be unbelievers um, who uh, have made their demands and their conditions and unless those conditions are met will not believe father I pray that your word would change their heart that your spirit would work mightily in their lives to make them into believers Lord help our unbelief strengthen us we pray and this time it's in Jesus name we pray amen